Well, we've been so well served already today in music and in the ministry of the Word, and it is my privilege to continue to lead us in our study of God's Word today. The men whom I speak alongside this week are my mentors, and I am humbled to have the opportunity to join them and to open up God's Word with you this afternoon. Under the banner of Unashamed, the theme given to me is power. And so I want to look with you at Christ's ascension as a way into that theme, specifically at the end of Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, verses 50 through to the end, if you have a Bible, please turn there with me. Christ's ascension as narrated by Luke in his gospel, chapter 24, verses 50 through to 53. The text reads, And he, Jesus, led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, He blessed them. And it happened that while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshipping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. May the Lord bless his word to our hearts this afternoon. When Jesus ascended, what became of his sandals? When Jesus ascended, what became of his sandals? That was a question asked by a Cambridge professor of a student applying to study at the university. Interestingly, not applying to study theology, but geography. And understandably, the young man was perplexed, unsure of why the professor had asked him this question. should be noted that he was a believer. The student was a Christian. So he pondered the question for a few minutes, and then he replied somewhat piously, whatever became of Jesus' sandals, neither you nor I are worthy to untie them. And that's probably as much as we need to think about that question. There are other questions that flow out from the ascension. When Jesus ascended, what became of the Pharisees? Those that had sought so hard to hinder Jesus' ministry, had sought so hard for his death, did any of them? Having heard the report of the empty tomb, having heard the reports of his resurrection, now hearing the report that he was seen ascending into heaven physically, did any of them change their minds? After the ascension, what became of the Romans who had a hand in his death? Many of them stood there seeing this man crucified, perhaps even saw his resurrected body, and now the reports come in, he's seen ascending into glory. Did any of them change their mind about this new way? 
Did they join the disciples? When Jesus ascended, what became of his disciples? Now, to that question, we have more of an answer. A whole book of the New Testament is given, narrating for us the testimony of Jesus' disciples after his ascension. Of course, I'm referring to the book of Acts. And in summary format, what became of the disciples, they became world changers. Acts chapter 17, these men who have turned the world upside down through their preaching, through their steadfast testimony, through their adherence to the local church, through their commitment to prayer, not seeking trouble, not trying to cause trouble, but by simply following after their Lord, they became men who turned the world upside down. How did they accomplish such tasks? Theologically, I would say, broad brushstroke answer, they ever kept before them the glory of Christ. As you read through Acts and examine every narrative, Jesus is not far away. He's in the speeches. The disciples start to look very Christ-like in their ministries, in their miracles, in their deeds. I'll often say, I think rightly, the book of Acts can be called the Acts of the risen Lord Jesus. They ever kept the glory of Christ before them. And even there is a pastoral implication for us. I'm reminded of the words etched into Simeon's pulpit in Holy Trinity Church, Cambridge. Taken from John chapter 12, sir. We wish to see Jesus. For 54 years, that man climbed into that pulpit, and every time he preached, he read the words, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. The mark of his ministry was setting forth the glory of Christ to his people. And the pastoral implication, evidently, is that we would do the same, that we would build strong, healthy Christians by ministering the glory of Christ Sunday by Sunday. But let's just prize that concept open a little bit and examine exactly what we mean by preaching the glory of Christ. Certainly, our task is to proclaim his sinless life. Certainly, our task is to proclaim his sin-atoning death. Certainly our task is to proclaim the glory of his resurrection. But so also is it our task to proclaim the ascended Christ. Walking again through the Acts narrative, examining in particular the speeches. On average, one every other chapter in the book of Acts. Examining the speeches, what you see is that a very prominent part of their Christology was Christ's exaltation. So frequently, they find cause to make mention of Christ's ascension as the means by which the believers were to understand themselves and live their lives. The ascended Christ was very much part of the Christology of the early church. In fact, beyond Acts, within the New Testament, 
Paul writes to Timothy and finds cause to record what seems to be an ancient creed. And this ancient creed speaks of the manifestation of Christ, the proclamation of Christ, the vindication of Christ, the belief in Christ, and the exaltation of Christ. It was a doctrine that was very prominent in the Christology of the early church, and then somewhere along the way, it seems to have been lost. All too often, we seem to fold the doctrine of the ascension into the doctrine of the resurrection. All too easily, we preach the glory of Christ's ascension as if it is synonymous with the glory of his resurrection. We fold them together, and in so doing, we subtract from his glory. Now, the need today, as we've already heard this morning, is to raise Christians in this hour who don't flinch from their testimony, don't run when trouble comes, hold fast to the gospel message, proclaim their faith in Christ, whatever are the consequences. And so our responsibility as ministers of the word is to proclaim a robust Christology, to issue truths concerning his sinless life, his sin-atoning death, his glorious resurrection, and so also his ascension. Now, the biblical text records the event twice, once at the end of Luke's gospel, once at the beginning of the book of Acts. Luke recording it twice, I do believe, so as to try and impress it further into our hearts. And I want to think this afternoon about the account of the ascension in the gospel narrative. Four verses at the end of the gospel. And from it, at least seven observations, encouragements for us concerning the ascension of the Lord Jesus. And yes, I'm second-guessing the wisdom in bringing a seven-point sermon at 4.30 on a Wednesday afternoon. Stone fire is coursing through your veins. One too many breadsticks. And jet lag hitting around about now. But if I keep moving, I think we can get through this. So, encouragement number one, the ascension proclaims Christ's return. The ascension proclaims Christ's return. We read, he led them out as far as Bethany. And we can stop there and simply ponder the question, why did Jesus choose as the location of his ascension the east side of the Mount of Olives? Why didn't Jesus ascend from Mission HQ, namely Jerusalem, or somewhere else? Why did he lead them out as far as Bethany? If we zoom out, we might remember that one of the motifs that Luke uses throughout his gospel and the book of Acts is that of a journey. Many, many journeys in Luke's writing. The gospel begins with a journey as Mary travels to see Elizabeth to speak of the events to come. It's in Luke's gospel that over half of the narrative is given to Jesus' journey on the way to Jerusalem, longer than any of the other gospels. 
It's in Luke's journey, in Luke's gospel alone, that we read the parable of the prodigal son, a journey out and then back home again. It's only in Luke's gospel that we read the parable of the Good Samaritan, one of many journeys. It's in Luke's gospel that we read that journey on the road to Emmaus. And then as we fall into Acts, we are confronted with yet more journeys. Think about the Ethiopian eunuch on the way back from worshipping meets Philip. Paul's journey on the road to Damascus. And then again, a large portion of the narrative towards the end is given over to a journey, Paul making his way to Rome. It's no accident. Luke is using this as a motif. To what end? Well, often, as we study these journeys, we find that they show us a surprising manifestation of God's grace. Think again about that road to Emmaus narrative. The last thing that those men expected was to meet the risen Lord Jesus. Or the Ethiopian eunuch coming back from worship is confronted with the truths of Isaiah and is saved and baptized. So if that's the way in which Luke seems to be using journeys, where then is the surprising manifestation of God's grace as he leads them out to Bethany? One last journey in the gospel. And of course, the key is to understand this is but half the journey. The surprising manifestation of God's grace has not yet come because it is half the journey. This is exactly the point the angels make in the essential account in Acts chapter 1. As you come to the close of Luke's gospel, he configures the narrative so as to communicate the point with a series of rhetorical questions. It begins in the empty tomb. They arrive and the angel says, why do you look for the living amongst the dead? Implication, he is alive. Then they meet him on the road to Emmaus and now Jesus asks the rhetorical question, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things? Implication, it is part and parcel of the gospel that he should die. Then Jesus appears to the disciples in the room and he says to them, why are your hearts downcast? Why are you fearful? Implication, you don't need to fear because I'm here, I'm risen. And then the last question informs our interpretation of this journey. In Acts chapter 1, the angels appear and they say, why are you gazing into heaven? This Jesus whom you saw ascend will come back. The manifestation of God's grace is yet to come and is securely located in Jesus' return. So you see the doctrine of the ascension guarantees the doctrine of Christ's return. It gives to us the blessed hope. It gives us confidence that we don't need to wait long, but Jesus is coming back for those whom he has saved. The logic of the argument is not that difficult to apprehend. Jesus ascended bodily. He will return bodily. That's the point the angel is making. It's not that difficult to apprehend. The difficulty for us to get our minds and our hearts around the significance of the ascension and be encouraged by it 
comes through the immediacy of our age. Like never before, ours is an age that lives in the present, in the now, with almost no understanding of from where we have come and very little understanding of where we are headed to. The immediacy of our age robs us of any sense of spiritual heritage and it is detrimental to our hope resting in the return of Christ. It wasn't that long ago that all children in America had to memorize the Gettysburg Address. Why? To instill in them a sense of where they had come from. This is your history. This is who you are. In the same way, one of the defining marks of preaching within the church has always been the blessed hope. Sunday by Sunday, ministering to the people the reality, the sure and certain reality of Christ's return. And the immediacy of our age threatens to rob us of that confidence. Do you seek to instill in your people every Sunday through the liturgy, through the songs, through the prayers that are prayed and through the preaching of God's word, the absolute certainty of Christ's return? It's not always going to be like this. The sin that you see around you won't prevail for long. Brothers and sisters, we come this Sunday morning knowing that very, very, very soon we will stand before the risen Lord Jesus and we will be like him because we shall see him as he is and in that moment all sin will be gone. Do you instill the blessed hope in your people? The ascension proclaims Christ's return. Number two, the ascension teaches everything is going according to plan. Everything is going according to plan. We read, Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, Lifting up his hands, he blessed them. It's important to understand as Jesus blesses his disciples, he's not doing so without precedent. Rather, Jesus is stepping into an Old Testament pattern whereby the leader would bless those that would come after him at the moment of his departure. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, the leader, blesses those that would come after him at the moment of his departure. Jesus is stepping into that well-established pattern. And the point of that blessing in the Old Testament was to communicate the certainty of God's goodness in their lives. Your leader is right now departing, but God will be with you as he has been with me. His goodness will be resting upon you. 
And many have suggested that perhaps at this moment, as Jesus raises his hands and blesses them in a very priest-like manner, perhaps at that moment, the content of the blessing he preaches is that of the ironic blessing in Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord give to you his grace, lift up his countenance towards you. May the Lord give to you peace. Maybe. And this would not have been a difficult moment for the disciples. They would have welcomed such a blessing from their Lord. All those Old Testament blessings were effective and irrevocable. When the patriarchs spoke, his words could not be taken back. What he said would come to pass. So Jesus does the same thing and blesses them, saying, God will be with you. His goodness will be upon you. The disciples would have been greatly comforted at this moment. It's not difficult to apprehend, to take to heart Jesus' words until perhaps a few days after his ascension. Until perhaps a few weeks after Jesus had gone to glory. Until perhaps a few months downstream of the ascension. Until perhaps years have now gone by, he still hasn't returned. How do we make sense of this blessing? Because as you know, Things start to get very tricky very quickly in the book of Acts for these men. They had received the blessing from Christ and then the corner turns and it's not that many chapters later that now they're being mocked for their faith. Now they're being persecuted for their faith. Now they're getting pushed back for the message that they proclaim. It's not many chapters later that Stephen is stoned to death. James is killed. Paul is imprisoned. So how now do we make sense of that blessing? And the answer, of course, is that we, just as they, need to appeal to what I call Luke's theology of necessity. Luke's favorite word, one word in the original, three words in the English, it is necessary. About a hundred times in the New Testament, Nearly half of them in Luke, Acts. Read through the whole narrative beginning to end. See how often Luke instructs us, it is necessary. It is necessary. He wants to communicate to us in no uncertain way, everything is going according to plan. Everything is going according to plan. You can see and understand God's goodness in this. Everything is going according to plan. Sometimes, as I preach narrative texts, one thing I'll do is to look into depictions of that narrative throughout the course of church history in paintings and drawings because I find value in doing that because the paintings of a particular narrative text in the Bible will often highlight what was the common interpretation of that text at that time. 
you get a window into the interpretation of the church as it relates to that narrative. And so what's interesting when you look at ascension artwork, throughout the course of church history, ascension artwork has often had at the feet of Jesus as he ascends, not merely the disciples, but hundreds of believers. So the narrative says the disciples are there. Oftentimes the ascension has been depicted throughout the course of church history with the church at the feet of Jesus. And the reason for that is because the interpretation, the correct interpretation of this text is that Jesus' blessing here unto the disciples transmits itself to us today. It is not limited to those that were physically present with Jesus at the point of his ascension. But rather, these words proclaiming God's goodness to them rightly are communicated to every believer since. Now, the inference is that means you and I also have to learn Luke's theology of necessity. And I don't say that lightly. It is one thing on a Sunday morning to herald the truth that even in your trials, God's goodness can be found. It is another thing to preach that truth to a room full of pastors. The burdens of the pastorate are unique. Thousands of men representing thousands of churches bringing unique burdens to the table. Burdens that you men know through experience. Burdens that weigh you down Sunday by Sunday. Burdens that are real, that you cannot contain to the church, but you bring home with you. Burdens that you feel affecting your wife and your children. The burdens of the pastorate are unique and many of them cannot be shared. They belong with you, the pastor. They belong with you, the elder. They cannot be shared and many of them are known by you alone. You can't share them. And everything is going according to plan. Brother, minister to your heart the truth of the ascension. Choose to find a resting place in the doctrine of the ascension. Before the people come, in the quiet of your study on a Sunday morning, choose to set your heart on the glory of Christ's exaltation and preach to yourself everything is going according to plan. Truth number three, the ascension speaks of our power. The ascension speaks of our power. Luke says, verse 51, it happened that while he was blessing them, he parted from them. It perhaps reads 
almost as somewhat redundant. We're told in verse 50 he blessed them, and then in verse 51 that he blessed them. Why is Luke telling us this a second time? But of course, the difference is in verse 51, Luke notes while he was blessing them, he began to ascend. He parted from him, and this small detail cannot be overstated in terms of its theological significance. You see, going back to that Old Testament precedent, when the leader would bless those coming after him, assuring them of God's goodness, at the same time, there was a transmission, a transferral of his office. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob passing on the patriarchal responsibilities. Moses passing on to Joshua the leadership of Israel. As they communicate that blessing at the point of their departure, something of their job description carries over to the one receiving the blessing. There is an implicit understanding that now I am to step up to the plate and be, in some way, to some extent, who you have been. So it is incredibly important to note that Jesus did not bless his disciples as a carpenter. He wasn't trying to make carpenters. He didn't bless his disciples while on the cross. Jesus didn't even bless his disciples in his resurrected form. Jesus gave this blessing in his ascended and exaltated glory. As Jesus ascends, that is the moment of him blessing those that would come after him. Not that they would now have any power in and of themselves, but rather from now on they would understand themselves to be mediators of the exalted Christ. This moment radically transforms their interpretation of themselves. From now on, they understood themselves to be mediators of the exalted Christ. This explains their confidence, their boldness throughout the book of Acts. How these men can preach the singularity of Christ. There is no other name given amongst men under heaven by which you must be saved. They don't flinch. They don't swerve in their message. Such confidence comes from their understanding that they are mediators of the exalted Christ. Think again about Stephen. His face shines like that of an angel. And he steps up and he preaches the longest sermon in the book of Acts. Those around him are bothered. Why? Because he went long? Because he convicted them about their sin. And so they pick up some rocks and they start to throw them at Stephen's body. And then they pick up some more rocks and they throw them at Stephen's body. And they pick up rocks and they throw them and they keep throwing the rocks until his heart Stops beating. First Christian martyr recorded for us in scripture. The point of Stephen's death, he doesn't run. 
He's not fearful. He doesn't flinch. He doesn't retaliate. He doesn't get embittered. His faith is unshakable. He says two things. Father, receive my spirit and forgive them for they don't know what they do. Stephen dies the most Christ-like death in all the Bible. How? It's a short narrative, but every time I read it, I am challenged. How does this man have such unwavering faith in the moment of his martyrdom? Answer, because the whole time he was gazing at the exalted Christ. Consider Paul. Zealous in his persecution of Christians. Delighting to preside over Stephen's death throwing Christians into jail and killing them. And then one day he emerges, utterly transformed, ready to die for the sake of the gospel, beaten, mocked, shipwrecked, tortured. This is the new Paul. Why? Because on the Damascus road, he met with the exalted Christ. These men understood their identity in reference to him. They were mediators of him. If you want your people to be strong in their testimony, to be strong in their convictions, to not run or shake or quiver in the day of testing, to die if necessary a Christ-like death, and to say with all sincerity, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. You must preach the exalted Christ. And the need for this has only increased with the advancement of secularism. As Western society has become ever more secularized, there have been some outworkings of that movement that we now have to deal with. Secularization, secularism is simply the removal of God, of divine and supernatural things, from everyday discourse that seeks to explain that which we can see. That's secularism. Remove any mention of God, any mention of the divine. We must not appeal to him as a way of explaining what we see around us. So we have as a society drawn, uh, pushed a wedge into the reality between the reality of God and everything that we see. And there are outworkings that come from that. With God now not ever being mentioned in the public sphere, ever less in the thoughts of our society, invariably over time we now start to ponder ourselves. We're no longer thinking about divine realities. We are left with thinking about who we are. We are now pondering questions that have never been asked before, not least, what does it mean to be a person? Ask that of somebody 50, 100 years ago, they would not have understood the question. And now it is a perfectly valid question because all mention of God has been removed. All that we know, all that we appeal to is that that is right immediately before us. And so a question on the table is what does it mean to be a human? And as you know, the most illogical arguments are being offered. The most illogical definitions are being submitted. 
No longer defining ourselves based on our relationship to one another, far less our relationship to God, almost entirely based upon our own preferences. To be a human means I get to act upon my sexual preferences and to validate those claims the most illogical lines of reasoning are being brought. And those claims are coming to your church. They are already there. They are coming to the door of your church. They are coming to the front door of your church members. And so more than ever, the pastor's responsibility is to teach a biblical anthropology. To teach the believer, the Christian, the one who has set his faith in Christ for salvation, that you are defined by your exalted Lord. Who am I? Equip your people to give an answer to that question. I am a mediator of the exalted Christ. And with that understanding, they will not flinch in the day of testing. The ascension proclaims our power. Number four, the, the ascension pro- proclaims Christ's care. The ascension proclaims Christ's care. We read, while blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Now again, the detail me seems incidental unless we consider the alternatives. Why didn't Jesus remain on earth with us? Why didn't he just stick around? Why didn't he keep teaching us, keep instructing us? Why isn't he here today? And it's so easy to fall into the way of thinking when we ponder such a question that we would be better off if he had stuck around. My sermons would be so much better if Christ was in my study. No, they wouldn't. I'd be a better Christian if Jesus was beside me. Nothing could be further from the truth. Because as Jesus ascended into glory, he began what is perhaps his most pastoral ministry, namely the ministry of intercession for you and for me. We've thought about it already today. When Jesus ascended, his intercession began. And again, this is a wonderful truth to continually preach to your congregation. It is ever so important that you inform them of Christ's intercession Constant intercession for the believer. Brothers and sisters, this Sunday morning we have an advocate before the Father. Ponder in your hearts the truth of Christ interceding on your behalf before a holy, righteous Father in heaven. He is covering you. Teach those realities. But do you ever minister those truths to your own heart? You see, the pastorate can can be an office that is full of subtle 
ironic tragedies. There are so many that are asking of your time, and yet it can be such a lonely position. You preach the word so often, and yet if you're not careful, you never take time to appropriate those truths to your own heart. You constantly lead brothers and sisters in prayer, And yet if you don't guard your calendar well, you never take the time to simply commune with your Father in heaven. Brothers, know this afternoon, Jesus prays for pastors. Jesus prays for elders. He knows your struggles and he intercedes for you. What is the nature of his intercession? We've rehearsed this wonderful truth already. Hebrews chapter 7, Christ is able to save to the uttermost because he ever lives to make intercession for us. You see the logic of the text. Christ is able to get you across the finish line. He is able to save to the uttermost. That is the purpose for his intercession. He is concerned that you are there on the last day. Jesus is not wanting you to make shipwreck of your faith. And so, his prayers for you are of the essence. Father, I pray for my brother this morning that you would sustain him in the pulpit and that you would minister his truths to his own heart. Father, sustain my brother in this counseling scenario so that the truths that he ministers to these believers are also truths that he treasures. Father, get this brother across the finish line. Jesus prays for pastors. He cares for you. And so again, fix your heart on the ascension. Find in that one doctrine Christ's pastoral love for you. Number five. The ascension anticipates our exaltation. The ascension anticipates our exaltation. We read, verse 52, they after worshipping him. So the narrative turns a corner at this point. Up until now, Jesus has been doing the actions and now as he has ascended, The spotlight is on the disciples, and the first thing we read is that they worshipped him. They abased themselves. They fell flat on the floor. The verb, as you know, means to fall on the floor as would be fitting, appropriate, when royalty enters into the room. That's what these men did as they saw Christ ascend. And it is such a beautiful picture. It is nearly the last picture in Luke's gospel, the ascended Christ and the abased disciples. And it is a beautiful picture because in many senses it encapsulates the theology of Luke's gospel. Again, one of the major themes in this gospel that permeates its way through every chapter is the simple but profound theological truth that God will raise up the humble and tear down the proud. Luke is concerned to teach us that lesson over and over and over again, beginning with Mary's Magnificat. She sings to God and she says, you have looked on my humble estate. 
From now on, all generations will call me blessed. You have seen my humility, and so from now on, I will be exalted by all subsequent generations. And then within the same song, she says, but you tear down the proud. In Luke's gospel, there is a particular emphasis on the poor, the lowly, the weak, the sick, the outcast, the women. Particularly in Luke's gospel, because he's showing us Jesus has come to elevate these ones. These are the ones whom he has come to save. And then, of course, Jesus is our foremost example of this very principle. He didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so, as Paul teaches us in Philippians chapter 2, he became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And for that reason, that is the theological premise that God gives for his exaltation. This is ascension theology. He has raised him up and given him a name above all other names. And there, Paul uses it in Philippians as an example for us to follow. Now, the disciples are a funny bunch because they don't get it. All the way through, they fail to see this principle. And so they ask such questions as, can I sit at your right hand in glory Who's your favorite? And just to be clear, had you or I been there, we would have been asking exactly the same questions. And then at the very, very last moment in the gospel, they get it. They drop down on the floor. They abase themselves. They finally get it. The exalted Christ and the humbled disciples and never, ever again will this be a problem for them for the rest of their earthly lives. Never again in the book of Acts is there misplaced pride. The disciples get it. They get their station. And so how is it throughout the Acts narrative that they can distinguish themselves with such humility, such readiness to preach the gospel and be utterly forgotten, to not seek the praise of men. How? Because they understand that Christ's exaltation preempts, foreshadows their exaltation. You see, this is really probing now the heart of ascension theology. When Christ left heaven, he took on human flesh. When he ascended, he did not leave his humanity behind him. Which means Jesus returned to the Father in a different state to that which he left the Father. He returns to the Father with his humanity. In part, so as to preempt, so as to send a clear signal. You will also be exalted with me at the proper time. The disciples see it and they get it. They see their future exaltation and so they have no need now in this earthly life to strive for the praise of men. Now again, ascension theology, the ascension, 
was more prominent in previous eras of church history than it is today. It used to be a thing to celebrate Ascension Day. Forty days after Easter Sunday, the church would put aside their business and enter into a celebration marking Jesus' ascension. And in the 1700s, an interesting practice in the city of London on that day was to gather up all of the orphans in the city, gather all the orphans, and they would scrub them down, clean them. They would clothe them in brightly colored clothes. They would then lead these orphans through the gray and dreary streets of London to St. Paul's Cathedral. And when they got to St. Paul's Cathedral, these orphans would form a choir and they would sing. And if you've ever been there, you'll know that enormous dome on top just captures the sound and it reverberates around and around and around. And William Blake wrote a poem about this very practice of gathering the orphans and leading them to St. Paul's. And in the poem, he pictures this army of brightly colored children as a river flowing through London. And their voices in St. Paul's as representing the children themselves, ascending to the Lord Jesus. The lowest in society, ascending to be with Christ. And so you start to see the greatest task, perhaps, for the pastor in the act of preaching is not to figure out how to more authoritatively wield the imperative. But it is to strive towards an ever better exposition of the indicative. The pastor's role leading people in the way of humility comes not by more emphatically preaching the imperative, but to minister by God's grace the glory of the indicative that Jesus' ascension prefigures our ascension. Devote yourself to preaching the grace of the gospel, including Jesus' ascension, and watch your people follow in humility. Watch them abase themselves. The church will not be applauded by society for showing up. Your people will not be applauded by society for giving of their time and their energy and their resources to the local church. There is nothing going for them in their church membership outside of the church. So how then do you lead them in the call to take up their cross and follow after Christ in the way of discipleship? You preach the doctrines of the gospel, not least Christ's exaltation. Number six, the ascension gives us purpose. After worshipping him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. The narrative in Acts chapter 1 of the Ascension includes in it Jesus' mandate to preach this gospel 
in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus gives them a mission. And here, we understand that the disciples are running toward that mission. They do not hesitate. They do not grieve. They are not confounded. They are racing back to Jerusalem with joy. They are bursting with joy at least in large measure, at the notion of their responsibility. And as you know, that's exactly the pattern that the Acts narrative follows. It does indeed get preached in Jerusalem and then in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They were faithful to the task. They didn't hesitate, but they ran with great joy to Jerusalem. The baton had been passed. Their responsibility is now real. Jesus is no longer with them, so theirs is the task of proclaiming the gospel. And they don't hesitate. Now, the gospel got to the ends of the earth, but the work isn't done. So there's an evident implication that this is also our mission. The task is now on. It has been handed to us also. We are to carry on with the work, and you as the pastor have two options. You have two options. You can preach the purpose of the Christian life. You can preach against consumerism in the church. You can, you can explain that they have a purpose, or you can neglect to do so. Should you neglect to explain purpose in the Christian life very quickly, you will have an ample counseling ministry. The reason being, when you don't preach purpose, you breed discontent. Your people don't know what they're supposed to be doing. They don't know who they are. They don't know what the job is. You fail to preach purpose, and now there is evident levels of discontent and all of the sins that come with it. So you now have a counseling ministry. Or you can preach responsibility in the Christian life. From the grace of the gospel, not prior to the grace of the gospel, preach the grace of the gospel and preach the responsibility that comes from it. There is a task that is set before us and we are to run toward the task joyfully, not hesitating. Help put your people on the map of redemptive history. Put your church on the map of redemptive history by preaching responsibility toward what? Toward the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel, adherence to truth, and simply showing up to church. Fellowship with the saints, breaking bread, devoting themselves to prayer. This was the manner of the disciples in the book of Acts. It is not rocket science. It is a very simple formula. But it is a weighty responsibility because that is the way that God is advancing his plan. Preach the responsibility of the gospel through the ascended Christ. Lastly, the ascension informs our worship. The ascension informs our worship. We read in verse 53, They were continually in the temple, blessing God. One way to think of the ascension is that it underscores the fact of the resurrection. The resurrection underscores the fact of the cross. 
Jesus came from the tomb. He's resurrected. The cross has accomplished what God intended. Our sins have been paid for. We know it for sure because he is the resurrected Christ. In the same way, the ascension validates his resurrection. I know for sure that Christ rose bodily from the grave because he ascended into heaven. Augustine said of the ascension, if Christ did not ascend, then his nativity was for nothing, his passion bore no fruit, and his resurrection is meaningless. The ascension underscores everything that has come before. Luke, I believe, ends his gospel in this way so as to say to us, there is nothing left to write. There's no more to be said. The gospel has been accomplished. It has been written. There is now nothing left to say. You are not being asked for a contribution. You cannot add to it. The gospel is complete. And the disciples understand that. They respond in the only appropriate way. They respond in worship. Continuously so. And Luke ends his gospel in the same manner there that he began it. Bookends of his gospel in the temple. Proclaiming the salvation that Jesus offers. And so you just can't imagine what it must have been like in those days. Where's Peter? He's in the temple, worshipping God. Where else would he be? Has anyone seen Andrew? Oh, he's in the temple, worshipping God. Where else would he be? Have you seen James recently? He's in the temple. He's worshipping God. Where else would he be? Who knows whether our freedom to assemble will remain. But may it always be said of Christians in this generation, they were continuously worshiping God in the church. Where else would they be? Because they had seen the ascended Christ. Let's pray to close. Our Father, we praise you today that Jesus is not with us, but that he ascended. We praise you for his exalted glory. We see in his ascension so many truths that issue from it, and we pray that we will be found faithful to proclaim a robust Christology that we would minister the whole Christ, his sinless life, his sin-atoning death, his glorious resurrection, and his exaltation. And by this, may the church be strengthened. In Christ's name, amen.